friend, hello. Hello, friend. Well, welcome to Death and Syntaxes, the podcast where we discuss the words behind what makes the crime. I'm Casey. I'm Sarah. Hey, Casey, do you do you hear that? What what is that? Oh, I do. Oh, it's the sound of the police. Part two. Part two. And I'm calling this one Law and Order for <laughs> for reasons that will hopefully become apparent. Uh-huh. So friends, welcome back. Since Casey was busy moving across the country again, I had ample time to research, but mostly stew over the content of this next episode. I've told Casey and my partner, the first episode was rough for me because early America kind of just goes over my head. But what we're discussing from here on out is the hill that I will die on. Mm-hmm. Mass incarceration and criminal justice reform were my number one draft picks in my college studies. I wrote a paper on the legalization of marijuana in this country that I got a B on and I'm totally not still bitter about. I may have gotten a little too conspiratorial. But anyway, the Reader's Digest version is that it was at least in part due to efforts of the newspaper industry to eliminate hemp for use in paper products. So yay, capitalism. Yay. Yeah, you're also still not super upset about it. I can tell No, not at all. I'm not, I'm not very, very mad about that. But you know. <laughs> I got A's on papers that I didn't care about at all, but I cared so much about that you're one. Like, this one? That's the one? Okay. Yes. All right. Apparently my passion came through too much. So my partner told me his criticism of the last episode is that he just wanted more content and i'm happy to oblige with that request so when we hit that hour and a half mark you have him to thank and as always with these we are covering a lot of ground and i know that you all have lives and other things to do so i won't be deep diving into a lot of specific areas but if something i mentioned interests you i'm sure that there's more to know and i just couldn't cover it so i encourage you to go do your own research i hopefully at the end of this we'll throw out a bunch of books and series and things that you can go read and look at yourself. And- I, I mean, and honestly, for what it's worth, like Sarah is so well versed in all of this. And especially in terms of the timeline, like she knows so much more than I do. So I think for this episode, especially, and probably the next one, I am going to just be like anecdotal. And so I'm learning as much as all of our listeners are, because Sarah is going to teach me like, you're clearly more well-equipped to teach me things. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm doing my best. <laughs> I, 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 honestly, though, like, this is your thing. And, like, I'm really excited to learn. So let's do it. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. There's so much content and so much to cover. So it, we're definitely not going to hit it all. But that's a perfect lead-in. So I hope that all this is worth it and that you learn something new like I did during this journey or simply just join me in my rage. But first, I want to issue a correction of sorts. I do not know everything. Um, In the course of doing more research for this episode, I realized that maybe not all the shit talking that I did on Volmer last time was warranted. I mean, people are complex, right? Mm -hmm. So he actually was the first to hire women and black people to the department. He didn't believe in the death penalty and put a stop to policemen taking bribes arguing that they should just be paid a fair salary, which is is justified. Sure. So I just want to acknowledge that mistake on my part. It's easy in hindsight to see where some of his ideas went wrong, but it does seem like his intentions were good. 
And in the course of the people that we're talking about, he's definitely more of a hero than a villain. So Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't know any well. of that. And like, I didn't take the time out to research it. But yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't know everything. And I will acknowledge when, you know, I learn something new and adopt that into my, I don't know, brain, repertoire, brain? knowledge of sorts. Your brain, yes. I okay. suppose. He was also against police getting involved in punishing drug use, something that we're going to talk about a lot today and probably the next episode as well. He continued to demand that police, like, not be shitty and he authored the report of the Wickersham Commission, which brings me back to where we left off last time with police reform. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to cover a ton of this, honestly, because it's just not super interesting or all that relevant to what I want to yell about. <laughs> but <Okay. laughs> the biggest one is the Wickersham Commission, which was appointed by Herbert Hoover in 1931. Their report entitled Lawlessness in Law Enforcement. Terrible name documented a range of abuses, including, quote, physical brutality, illegal detention, and refusal to allow access of counsel to the prisoner. These were particularly common when police interacted with minorities and immigrants. Huh. Yeah. There were several of these commissions to address corruption and policing that had just been rampant through the early 1900s. We touched a little bit on that last time. And the push was part of the progressive era, and it was sort of known as the professionalization of the police. It basically attempted to rectify the abuses that came with prohibition and separate the police from local government. Mm. And what's more profesh than a union? I I don't know. Probably a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I needed a transition. Maybe a good blazer? I'm not sure. I love a good blazer. I know. I'm just saying. As long as it buttons properly. I don't like the ones that have like the one button. I'm like, this is just for show. (laughs) How is one supposed to blaze in this? uh, How do I blaze in this (laughs) blazer? Excuse me, ma'am. I know this is a Kohl's. How do I blaze in this blazer? (laughs) No? It's a very small fire we have going. I wouldn't call it a blaze. Anyway, with unions, the rocky start brings us back to our old boy, Samuel Gompers. No. no. <laughs> Gompers? Anyone? No. Gompers? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, <laughs> okay, well, kind of it does. I had to throw that in there just to get this reaction from Casey. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, still can't I don't know why Gompers gets me so much. You said it, though. Proud of you. You're bright red, but you said it. I know. (laughs) Okay, so back on track. From the last episode, we know that the police spent a good chunk of time in the early 20th century busting up strikes and basically being anti-union. But maybe some of that rhetoric struck a chord as police were facing low pay and long hours without overtime. But they couldn't just call themselves unions. Unions are bad. They're Mm -hmm. actually... (laughs) They're actually spending many of those unpaid work hours fighting unions. So many early police labor organizations had names like the Fraternal Order of the Police or the Police Benevolent Association. The FOP. I didn't even put that together. Yes, the FOP. The (laughs) FOP and the the PBA. The FOP, damn it. (laughs) It's 
right there. Sorry, I mean, it just no, lobbed it no, up for thank us. thank you. <laughs> they clearly knew that we were going to make this podcast in this day and time, but they were like, listen, we're going to give you an acronym for you to just, you know, make fun of. I was like, well, Fop. here yeah. we are. <laughs> so the American Federation of Labor was granting these charters for police unions across the country, and Boston was looking for recognition for their own. The AFL agreed to charter them, but the police commissioner at the time banned any officer from joining the union. These tensions culminated in the strike of the Boston Police Department in 1919. Mm -hmm. And like, Boston go Boston. So they went ham, fucked up the city, the state guard were set in, and nine people (laughs) ended up dead. (laughs) Just, oh my God. Just Boston, you know? Governor Calvin Coolidge made the call to send in the state guard after the riot was already under control. Okay, and it, uh, this is wild to me because, to be fair, I read Sarah's like notes on this. And so Coolidge sent in 7,000 state militiamen to restore that order. And to disperse those rioters, the state guard shot directly into those crowds and they killed nine people. Like she said, they wounded 23. And then when, like, order was finally restored, quote-unquote. Yeah, I was going to say, quote-unquote. Yeah. yeah. All 1,147 striking officers were fired and replaced. I don't know if you're going to get to that, but I just, I read that and I thought it was really interesting. So, anyway. Yeah, we're going to get to it, but these lines between, I guess, like, this is a state guard, but still, like, a militia versus, like, local law enforcement just become Mm -hmm. increasingly blurred, like... So after all this has happened, or I think maybe in the midst of it happening, uh, AFL president, one Samuel Gompers, returned <laughs> from a trip to Europe. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I knew it was happening again. <laughs> you have seen the notes. I'm so sorry. I can't handle Gompers. We're going to get past it. This is the last little bit. <laughs> okay. So he urged these policemen to return to work, which they did. He went back and forth with Coolidge, saying that Commissioner Curtis was to blame for the strike, but Coolidge wouldn't relent and famously wrote, quote, there is no right to strike against the public safety, anywhere, anytime. And it was this hardline stance for, quote, law and order that's credited as part of the reason he received the Republican nomination for vice president. Mm, Okay. This resulted in many states banning the right of state public safety workers to organize, And there would not be another police strike until 1974. But what would and still occur are police slowdowns, which maybe we'll get to (laughs) another fucking topic. But basically, it means that they just respond only to calls. So they just slow down their work. So it wouldn't be until the 1960s that many states would change these laws. But then by the 1970s, police unions existed in every major city And they are some of the most successful and powerful unions. It also didn't help that there was a rise in violent crime in the 1960s. Now, a lot of this can be sort of explained by the coming of age of the baby boomer generation. There was more crime because there were just more young people, which are the demographic that are more likely to commit this type of crime. Sure. But this is during the end of what they call the Great Migration, which is when like African-American people, Blacks, were moving out of the South to other parts of the country and wanted to enforce the promises of emancipation. Like, I don't know, like equality. Yeah, no, yeah. So We're free. Let's get the fuck out of here. I don't blame you. Not at all. Casey just experienced this. 
I, I'm like, oh my God, I have healthcare now? Weird. What? Oh my God. This is wild. It's not based on your BMI either? I, I mean, I know. Isn't that weird? It's oh, so that bizarre. that was horrifying to me. Everyone's on native land. I just want to remind everyone. <laughs> Jesus Christmas. So anyway, you have the civil rights movement, which was a largely peaceful, but with any social movement, there are clashes, and the police became implicitly responsible for regulating these dark-skinned folks. So you have this coded message of, hey, white people, you need to protect us so we can protect you from them. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for law enforcement and the people they serve? Sidebar, this will happen throughout the episode, but most of the research I could find about these various changes is based on more recent data, data, data. As we look at the efficacy of our police systems, it's just in recent times we've gone back and studied this a little bit more thoroughly. So I want to tell you how these things got started, but the research and statistics part is going to reflect more on modern findings for the most part. So... The University of Chicago Law School's, oh, Domica Dharmapala, yep. Richard McAdams, and John Rappaport used a 2003 Florida Supreme Court decision as a test case. This gave collective bargaining rights to the sheriff's office, but not the police. So the police were used as a control group in this. Well, they found that misconduct violations rose in the sheriff's offices, but not the police. Huh. That is so... That is wild. Interesting, right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Another study by economists Rob Gilazow, Jamine Cunningham, and Donna Fair, which has yet to be published, studied the relationship between unionization and police killings by studying different states at various times, starting in the late 1950s. So Gilazow told NPR, quote, We found that after officers gained access to collective bargaining rights, that there was a substantial increase in the killing of civilians. From a .026 to .029, additional civilians are killed in each county each year, of whom the overwhelming majority are non-white. That's about 60 to 70 per year civilians killed by police in an era historically where there were a lot fewer police shootings. So that's a humongous increase. It Yeah. <laughs> it sounds minuscule when you say 0.026, but we're talking about national statistics, like over all of these counties, it adds up. And we're also talking about people. Like we forget, like people are not statistics. Yes, Absolutely. And oftentimes people only care when it's somebody that they know or they care about or whatever. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's like that 0.026, that 0.029, that matters to somebody. Absolutely, it does. And we could just be a little bit better about that. That's all I'm saying. All right. No, it's an excellent point. And these things are only correlated, obviously. Always going to say that. Right. The police yes. unions Sorry, provide. Yes. Well, no, your point is still valid. regardless of that. But police unions provide huge protections from members facing accountability for misconduct. And since we're a words podcast, let's Mm -hmm. examine the text of some of these police union contracts. So first off is a study by Oxford's Abdul Rod found that police union contract provisions protecting police are correlated with greater police abuse. Interesting. Interesting. 
In 2018, Stephen Russian, a law professor at Loyola University Chicago, looked at 656 police union contracts and found, quote, the vast majority of these departments give police officers the ability to appeal disciplinary sanctions through multiple levels of appellate review. At the end of this process, the majority of the departments allow officers to appeal disciplinary sanctions to an arbitrator selected in part by the local police union or the aggrieved officer. So what can you explain that to <clears throat> me? Like, like I'm Michael Scott, like explain that to me like I'm six. Like explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. No, absolutely. Um, essentially, it means that, for one, police can continue to appeal any sort of like discipline that's, what's the word? Like any discipline that's uh, they're accused of, they can kind of just keep appealing it. And the last part is the one that gets me, is that they're often allowed to appeal to an arbitrator selected in part by the police or the aggrieved officer. So they get to have a say, or the police department get to have a say in who the person who's basically making this decision of whether or not they should be disciplined for whatever they're accused of. Yeah, so they're just mean girls, essentially. Yeah, and it, you know, I'm going to get to it a little bit, but it's the whole issue of like one of the largest side effects of these unions are that police want to regulate themselves. They don't want any sort of oversight, whether it be like a civilian review board or something from a state or federal level. They want internal accountability, but that doesn't work for anybody. My coworker told me that her six-year-old child had to write her own uh, self-evaluation at school. I was like, what is she going to fucking say? Like, we can't be trusted to evaluate ourselves. I drew a lizard. I was told that it was supposed to be a dragon. I'm wrong. It didn't do well. I I told her, I was like, all that's going to do is separate the confident kids from the ones that aren't. Like, terrible idea. So Russia notes that, quote, while each of these appellate procedures may be individually defensible, they combine in many police departments to create a formidable barrier to officer accountability, which is basically what we were just saying. Like, if you break everything down, you can make an argument for it. But when you have all of these things together, it essentially means that nobody is holding them accountable but themselves. Further, he found rules giving officers a heads up that they will be interviewed by internal affairs detectives or other investigators in a few days about a case of potential wrongdoing. Quote, most people, including myself, would say if you provide officers with delays telling them we'll interview you in two days, that probably is a barrier to accountability. Notifying that you're about to talk to them gives them time to compare stories. We I'm Will we do that with people we suspect of crimes? I was just about to say that. (laughs) So you're allowed to then, and there are certain cases where it's like, oh, the the police are your friends, right? They're going to tell you a little bit. Like if you're prepped for trial, that's one thing. Sure. Tell me I'm wrong, right? So you're prepped for trial, that's one thing. But if you are being brought in on an accusation. Are you given that amount of time? So you can say, you know, whatever it is you want to say. Or did they give like Brendan Dassey? Did they give him an adequate amount of time? I can't think of who that is. That was Stephen Avery when he was just coerced so hard by the police. Oh, is that making a murder? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Well, yeah, and then especially when you have multiple officers that are involved in some event, 
and they know that they're going to be interviewed, then they can all speak to each other and exactly. yeah, and come up with a proper story, potentially. Well, then they have the ability then it's like, okay, so if somebody committed a crime with somebody else, well, let's just like get our story straight, right? Yeah, 100%. That's what it is. That's why we separate people immediately into different interview rooms and a different jail cell. So they can't do that. But we don't hold our office. It's like Sarah and I had a rough night out. And it's like, let's ask us about our night out. (laughs) We're going to tell you very different stories. Wildly different stories. Yeah. (laughs) Separate us immediately. (laughs) So I mean, it, it gets to the question like, so how have these police unions gotten so powerful? The answer really is with a strong political game. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that police acted as agents of the local government. That's why we had all this reform to separate them. Mm -hmm. And then they also linked crime with race. So, for example, in New York City in 1966, the Patrolman's Benevolent Association promoted a ballot measure that would bar citizens from serving on an oversight board. Supporters of the union ran an ad showing an anxious white woman exiting a subway alone on a deserted street with the words, quote, her life, your life may depend on it. The group's president at the time warned, quote, you won't satisfy these people until you get all Negroes and Puerto Ricans on the board and every policeman who goes in front of it is found guilty. The police union and its allies won in a landslide victory. That is fucking bullshit. That is such fucking bullshit. It makes me so angry. We don't have the time, but there's story after story about these unions fighting to not have civilian or any sort of oversight, and they have all this political power, so they're able to get away with it. I included a picture of that ad, which it, uh, it just reminds me. We yes, we will put that on the socials. But it and this is neither here nor there. But it's like if we're being conscious of gender stereotypes, I've talked about this before. It's the Snoop Dogg Martha Stewart ad that I've seen, and it said, "Be mindful of stereotypes because one of these people is a convicted felon." Mm-hmm. Like get fucked. That is yeah. so irritating. Yep. So I know it's not about the like police unions, but it just makes me mad because it's oh okay all right. Well, no, I mean what what you're saying is part of what is basically going to be my grand thesis, culminating in episode three of, <laughs> <laughs> of why we can't just fix this. I'll bring this up again then. I'm sure. No, it's, some- it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not irrelevant. It's it's on brand. Like this racism, this misogyny, this. All of the things are so deep-seated within our law enforcement, and that's the sort of through line that I'm trying to track. It's just going to get worse. So among the union's most ardent champions in the tumult of the 1960s was the segregationist Alabama governor George Wallace, a Democrat. Quote, the police in this country are a beleaguered group, Wallace said in an interview uh, republished in the New York Times in 1967. They deserve praise for beating civil rights marchers in Selma, or as he put it, for shutting down, quote, unlawful assembly there. In a speech before the convention of the the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, that same year, Wallace drew a standing ovation as he called for a literal police state, saying, quote, if the police of this country could run it for about two years, then it would be safe to walk the streets. Yeah. And then, you know, what is so funny is that I was kind of reading this out loud to myself earlier 
And there are certain parts, like everything is genuine. Like I'm learning from Sarah, like I said, but I read this part, like kind of out loud under my breath and my partner goes, yeah, sure. But you won't be safe in your house. Cause I read that quote out loud. Cause I was trying to understand it and read it the way that I thought that you would. And it's just like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, no, sure. But you won't be safe in your house. Cool. Everything's great. It's fine. It's fine. Right. Yikes. That's, that's dark. I Police officers do have higher rates of uh, intimate partner violence. So mm-hmm. moving right along, uh, Wallace did lose his 1968 bid for presidency, but his message prevailed. And Richard Nixon's winning law and order strategy and a new penchant among Democrats for declaring themselves tough on crime were products of his campaign. These messages resonated because crime and violence were not merely white concerns. As the Yale law professor James Foreman Jr. writes in Locking Up Our Own, black political leaders in the 70s and 80s pushed for strict anti-crime measures with the strong support of their constituents. They also sought more government aid to fight things like poverty and discrimination. But that's, you know, not not as spicy. Uh, So (laughs) people accepted the trade that Wallace offered. Give the police impunity and they will give you order. Yet the military, who is hardly exempt from questions about fair pay or capricious leadership, lacks a union. This is a matter of tradition, not law, but it reflects an understanding that such an organized political entity would be dangerous. We need our military to defend us, not (laughs) themselves. So instead, the military relies on public support, which means that they need to maintain at least an outward stance of political neutrality, even when a sitting president expects them to interfere on his behalf. So just a thought. (laughs) And we're going to see, like I brought up earlier as we go along, that these lines between federal military and state and local law enforcement are becoming increasingly blurred These unions persist and they hold massive power. Okay. And so I wonder about that just, and this may or may not be like pertinent, but like if we're talking about putting accountability on like civilians and stuff, I just wonder about like tradition. Like we teach our children to be like taught obedience and not respect. Like they're taught to be obedient to people in uniform and things like that. Mm-hmm. So if it comes to like civilian control, like what, what do we expect our kids to do? I don't know. I, it just, my brain goes to that. Can you say a little bit more? I'm trying to. Because we're. Oh, in the military or law enforcement exercising civilian control. Exactly. Like, and because like, again, true crime podcast, but how often people pretend to be like people in uniform and stuff for like kids. But we are taught to abide by these people because they're in uniform. Yep. Like, just because you're wearing a uniform. And I read an interesting article as I was, like, researching. There are so many off-duty police officer crimes, (laughs) which is uh, wild. So, anyway. I mean, Golden State Killer was the last huge one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it's like somebody, like he was an off-duty police officer and he kicked this guy in the throat because this person was acting out of line, but they were like in a bar and like, where, where do we draw the line then with that? But I know that's besides the point. Anyways. No, it's a, it's another interesting topic that I, I couldn't really include, but I was, uh, I don't know, reading, listening to something else about that. And there was a point in time 
it was during like the prohibition and the big like gang mob era where they were <laughs> there was some guy who wanted to give firefighters guns because they had the power to arrest people and so they thought that firefighters needed um I guess like firearm training and they needed to <laughs> these co- uh, these firefighters all these guns and they were talking about giving these cops these uh they were fucking they were just like gangster mob cars and they had the same operation as the mob they had the they have holes cut out in the window so you could stick a shotgun out and they gave them sawed off shotguns to fight these like bootlegger mob type <laughs> criminals and, but then they're just a sawed-off shotgun has no accuracy, so they're just shooting this shit into the no. crowd. And, like, at what point do does law enforcement become the criminals themselves? You know, exactly. where do you draw the fucking line? Well, and I actually love that you said that because when you were talking about, like, the lines between federal military and, like, state and local law enforcement, again, I was reading that under my breath, and my partner, who has been in the military in the past, he just said... You have no rights in the military. You have the right to shut up and do what you're told. Yeah. So. And that's like why I bring that up, that little aside. The military doesn't have a fucking union. They don't have all of these like quote unquote rights. They don't have all of these protections against accountability. Mm-hmm. I Not to say that there aren't internal problems with our military as well, but these mechanisms don't exist for them to hide from them. Right. Yeah. So. Unfortunately, I wish that I could leave like a a better sort of recourse for this, but there are almost 18,000 police departments across the United States and the relations between the departments and unions just vary by jurisdiction. So if we want to try to curtail this union power, it's going to be a local fight based on where you are. Like I know in California, um, not just the police unions, but the prison guards union is very, very powerful. It's up there with like the teachers union, which is a very strange dynamic. <laughs> but, oh my God, don't make it started on that. So anyway, I want to move on to the, the next thing. So what else is happening during this time? Well, some black folks are protesting for the rights and freedoms that they were promised with the passage of the 13th Amendment and the end of slavery. We kind of just got into this a little bit. We as a country threw a big qualifier into these equal rights, called it separate but equal. And as I said before, By and large, these protests were peaceful, but they were reframed as riots to the public and the police used brutal tactics to subdue them. In the public perception that crime is rampant and politicians started calling for that law and order. And this slogan was used by George Wallace, as I said, but it was co-opted by Richard Nixon, by Ronald Reagan, and then it kind of goes on and on. It would become so ingrained in political rhetoric that by not saying that you were pro-law and order, we would essentially ruin any chance of being elected. So not to downplay the advances that the civil rights movement made, and I just don't have time to go into that, but in terms of policing, it basically rebranded racism. So the era of plausible deniability is not unlike today. People wouldn't accept overt racist speech or behavior, but under the banner of law and order, race didn't matter. It was just about criminality. So outside of policing, you see this rhetorical strategy change as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Lee Atwater, who was a political strategist during this time, he was caught on tape saying, Uh... 
quote, uh, <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna redact some of this, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quote, don't. no, uh, you start out in 1954 by saying N word, N word, N word. By 1968, you can't say N word. That hurts you. Backfires. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you're getting so abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing, and hell, a lot more abstract than N-word, N-word. This was part of the Southern strategy. It was a political strategy by Republicans to get the vote of poor whites in the South. Prior to this, they had typically voted with Democrats because of the working class, but Nixon played on youth culture and racial tensions. White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman noted Nixon, quote, emphasized that you have to face the fact that the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognized this while not appearing to. Did anybody hear a dog whistle? I feel like I heard a dog whistle. Anyway. Huh? Huh? (laughs) What? What? (laughs) So he ran a campaign on states' rights and law and order. And as the police power grows alongside the anti-crime message, we see the beginning of another trend. Black leaders are being jailed or murdered by the police, and this would only continue to grow. So to those who ask, why don't they just organize and demand justice? Well, because when they do, they wind up dead or in prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, weird. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, sure, quick sure. sidebar to this, because I can tell Casey liked that one. Um, uh. There's a great podcast that from Robert Evans. He does Behind the Bastards, but he did this limited series that was aptly titled Behind the Police, and it features this activist and rapper, Propaganda, goes by Prop, and I loved it so much. Um, Prop gets so he always is like asking these these types of questions and he always goes you think we haven't thought of that you think we haven't thought of that like <laughs> like why don't you guys just get elected to office and then there's huh. all these stories about these horrible things <laughs> to black people that get elected why don't you guys just get guns well they come and they take all the fucking guns away you think we haven't thought of that yeah <laughs> Oh, I love that. Uh, I love that. It's such a good little podcast series. I think it's six episodes. And Robert is like the white guy providing all the like background stories. The prop comes in with like, he's an activist too. So he knows all of this, but he has all the anecdotal stuff from his childhood. You and think we haven't thought of that? God damn it. I love it. We haven't thought of that. Yeah, because it's so fucking true. Like, <laughs> what they fucking did to Black Wall Street, Tulsa? Like, <laughs> You think, you we, think we haven't thought of <laughs> that? Is fantastic, and it's but it's so simple. I'm not saying simple in a bad way. I'm saying it is so simple, like because yeah, are you fucking joking? Like these people are so repressed, and they have been dealing with this for so long. It's like, are you? Yeah, no, thanks. That's really no. It's a good idea. Great like, advice, Mighty. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> It it just it's such a good way to be like so succinct about something that is so large. I don't know. I love that. I'm glad you loved it because I loved it so much too. And I was looking for a way to like <laughs> throw that in there because you think we haven't thought of that. We Come we've on. tried all these fucking things and they just keep slapping us down. And we're not even okay. All right. Yep. I know. 
So this period marks the beginning of discretionary policing, which is important because it allows officers to use their individual judgment in law enforcement. And we just keep giving them more discretion as time goes on. How do you feel about that really fast? Like individual judgment? Because that one always, that kind of gets me. I think it depends on the context. So the context that I'm going to bring it up in, I'm very much against. I mean, individual judgment in terms of, I guess, maybe like, you know, running interviews and like investigation and like going with your gut and choosing. Like, I think that that's probably an inherent part of law enforcement. But we also need all of these things to protect us from everything that it says in the Constitution, like unnecessary searches and seizure. Mm-hmm. So, which I really appreciate you saying that because like, I know that with a lot of these things that we've talked about, I was very, I I wouldn't say like impartial in the sidebar about like tribal police, but I was very like, here are the facts and this is like what you can do. And like, this is just kind of my place. And I kind of stand the same ground here, but I, uh, I'm happy to hear you say that because I know that you and I can kind of agree and I, I know we'll get there, but, uh, we need some very serious reform. Yeah, and I've I've done a little bit of like cursory research into it and I think it's very anecdotal the idea of like your intuition and like your gut. I know that people love to reference that and like I even watched another show, I think it was called Missing and Murdered or something like that. It was about a police department in South Carolina that searches for missing people and so it was like a real life kind of docu-series. And one of the gals who was in there, I actually enjoyed it, but like she she said like after a while you can tell when someone is lying to you. And they've done a lot of social research that proves that that's just not really true. Proves is a strong word, but that suggests that that's not really true. And I think that maybe it's some sort of bias within ourselves that wants us to believe that. That's a psychological theory. Oh, no, we're rabbit hole like, that I'm not like going to go down. Cons. We're going like way yeah. back, way way back. Yeah. yeah. But I think that we overestimate our gut and our intuition and how accurate it actually is. Well, and what I'm, I think now I'm getting to the point and sorry if I'm getting us off track, but I'm also thinking like, where are the checks and balances of this? Well, that goes back to the police union. Like clearly they're trying to make sure that we're not. And yeah, we'll get a little bit more into like the relationship between like the legislative body and like the enforcement body, you know, the laws are supposed to be the checks on this. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Theoretically. Yeah. So. Sorry to get us off track. No, it's okay. It's 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 all relevant. So, you know, when you have this rise of discretionary policing, the Civil Rights Act passed in 1964. So, you know what else actually happened during that time? Stop and frisk laws in New York. And this was upheld in the Supreme Court in 1968 in Terry v. Ohio. And it falls under what is a soon-to-be criminological theory called broken windows, which was introduced in 1982 by James Wilson and George Kelling. And I didn't write this in there, but fun side fact about, I can't remember which one of them it was, but one of these guys- It was was, probably Gompers, honestly. (laughs) Probably was. God damn it. One of these guys was was buddies with one of the other guys that wrote The Bell Curve, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but is a very uh, problematic scientific research that was very racist. (laughs) So just to give you an idea of like where they're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. They were like homies. Uh, Oh, to be a fly on the wall. That conversation. 
I know this is not a visual medium, but all of this, like, I know I keep saying like I read Sarah's stuff, but I read it so that I can like chime in, you know, when I need to, because like, it, <laughs> it I'm adds. also like, hey, I'm here. Yeah, I have to yeah. add things. But <laughs> like, she's doing all these things that are wonderful. I am learning this as we're talking about it. This is fucking irritating. This is, I am. No, Join this, me in my rage. I'm telling you. <laughs> When you said that, when you said like, guess what? Stop and frisk. I viscerally felt that. Like I felt it. I just. One step forward, two steps back. Same time. So you're not going to be able to edit out all of my like, eh, and, uh, and like all of my little things. No, like, it's it's all visceral. I mean, and oh, this, this God, is, hell. I know that you skim my notes, but this part makes me so fucking mad too. So this is. We're talking about the broken windows theory. Mm-hmm. And so the basic idea of it is that a dilapidated area with vandalism, loitering, public drinking, and broken windows would invite more crime. And that with a show of law and order authority, that would stop it. All we need are just like hall monitors to make sure that people don't do this shit. So the logical conclusion is that if these you know petty crimes are stopped, the area will improve. The implication of this is that crime causes poverty, not poverty causes crime. But <laughs> no, we're Sorry. not. Even, we're not even, I know. But, okay. So this came out 14 years after stop and frisk laws. So how does it relate? Well, the only empirical evidence that informed this theory was based on the misunderstanding of an experiment no. by my boy. No. Philip Zimbardo. That's your man. That's, That's your boy. I mean, not really. He was also very racist, but what? <laughs> but he was just such a character. At least I got Gompers. <laughs> you get Zimbardo. Uh, yeah, Gompers is actually way better in terms of history. Yeah. Zim- Zimbardo. Uh, anyway, in this experiment, he wanted to explore the social causes of vandalism to show that it didn't result from the individual. So in 1969, he put one Oldsmobile in the Bronx and one Palo Alto because he was a Stanford guy. He figured that the boo. Bronx, yeah, boo trees. trees. Thank you, thank <laughs> you for getting on board. Boo trees, boo trees. <laughs> so he, I mean, he assumed that the one in the Bronx would be destroyed, and he was right. But they were surprised to find that it was a white couple that started the destruction because he was racist. And the Bronx soon made quick work of the rest of the car, but the one in Palo Alto was untouched. So super scientifically, he figured that he would jumpstart the process and took to landing the first blow himself. But he and his students started having too much fun and they went apeshit destroying the car. So much so that other Stanford students started joining in. So the question is, was it the broken window of the car that encouraged them to do that? Or was it the spectacle of this wizard-looking psychology teacher and his grad students tearing apart an Oldsmobile on the Stanford also, campus. is this empirical? That's what I wonder because I had to do so much empirical research for my master's. First of all. Second of all, uh, there was a part everyone made fun of me when I made a presentation and I used, remember Brain Games? Do you remember that yeah. TV show? They did one where they were like, oh, we're in Vegas. And when Sarah and I were in Vegas, we went to Crime Con. I don't know. It like, must have been like two years Crime ago. Crime Con! Yes. Crime Con! And so we were there and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the spot where they had people just stand in line. They just set up like a turnstile and people just started standing in line. Like, yeah. 
How it? No, this is the only quote unquote empirical evidence. But see, and this is where like for so long, I used to tell Sarah, I'm like, this is so funny because I read this on like Reddit or whatever. And she's like, no, no, no. She's like, girl, you got to like think about it though. Because, and you're right, because data, data, data is so, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. Like it's more subjective than you think. It absolutely is. It's, it is not entirely accurate. And that's why it's wild to me. I'm like, if I did not have certain types of information to back up my thesis, then it wasn't accurate. And I'm like, well, but then who's to say that their information is accurate? It's coming from shit like this. This is informed 50 years of policing based on this ridiculous study. (laughs) Oh my God. Which, but I mean, like it happened fine, but we're going to use we're going to use that. That's the basis. Yeah, that's, that's the basis. That's what we're doing. That's what we're going with. Okay. Yeah. Is this how Fox News was born? I'm just curious. I just oh. I feel like, oh, sorry. No, is that? No? That, <laughs> no, that you're fine. <laughs> Should we edit it out? Whole series is anti-cops, but Fox News is the line. <laughs> <laughs> that's where we draw the line. <laughs> I, I can just hear it right now. Fox News is like, a car in Palo Alto was a... Uh, Destroyed based on one broken window. Get That's fucked. all it took. That's all it took. Tucker Carlson. I know he's not on there anymore, but still get fucked. He sucks. Anyway. Sure. Sure. Um, anyway. Yeah. I just want to throw this in there because it makes me feel cool. Uh, personal connection. I've taken a bat to a car and it is fun. Uh, <gasps> it is Did you do very it? fun to destroy a car. So I don't know if this is the best metric to, to test this. It's just fun to wreck cars. Well, you I, weren't like trying to do an empirical study i want to no, do it too I was, just, I was just fucking wrecking a car man it's great oh. <laughs> i want to do that i've heard it's really fun like those one day like, we'll go to rooms. oakland oh or yeah or oakland destroy that's rooms, where oakland. it was it was <laughs> Either, it's the same thing sorry oakland the no destroy- nothing against you <laughs> the break rooms in oakland <laughs> west oakland yeah about the same about the same if, if, if the shit sits out there too long it's just gonna get wrecked that's- listen Them's the rules. I didn't write them. (laughs) (laughs) The streets did. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, we're crushing it. Um, Okay. Okay. (laughs) You had to to say that. You had so much time to think. I know. And that's what you used. All right. Oh, yeah. That's what I I wrote. I wrote it. I'm going to say it. I enjoy it. So despite all of these amazing, <laughs> well-researched, well-founded techniques for curbing crime, we still needed more law, more order. Dun, dun. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it, so I waited. We've got cops who can search whoever they want for basically any reasons, unions to protect them from accountability, and the latent racism of poor whites looking for someone to bra- brame. Looking for someone to blame. And that brings us to the war on drugs. I don't because, I got high. because I got high. <laughs> because I got high. Because I got high. There you go. Da, 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 da. <laughs> So, okay, deep breath before this one. Drugs have been used as a pretext to discriminate in this country before. It happened with the Chinese and opium and the Mexicans and marijuana. But in June of 1971, President Nixon declared his war on drugs. Boo. Fuck Watergate. Fuck. This is the worst thing he ever did. Nixon. Fuck yeah. Richard Nixon. Dick. The only credit I will give him in the sake of fairness is that he 
did focus on rehabilitation the most since this war has been declared. But whatever, fuck him for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This wasn't the first war on an idea. In 1965, LBJ declared a war on crime, just one year after declaring a war on poverty. And so before I go off on the war on drugs, it's important to note that this all set the stage for what's about to come. With his war declared, Johnson signed the Law Enforcement Assistant Act that allocated $30 million to a program within the Department of Justice to grant to local law enforcement. Military-grade equipment was purchased with these funds. So that means that they were able to use that money to buy anything for local law enforcement, like guns and tanks and... I don't know the specific restrictions that were put on it, but it's federal money going to local law enforcement. And it's, again, setting the stage for this relationship between the federal government and local law enforcement and then federal military. Okay. Okay. Specifically. All right. See, okay. I misunderstood. Okay. Yeah. So this created an incentive for local law enforcement to take federal direction. Okay. And I it. want you to remember that. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, back to Nixon's war on drugs. John Ehrlichman, a former aide, would say from a 1994 interview with Harper's Bazaar that was published in 2016, quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana, the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. No, that's f- that is fucking bullshit. That is, like, evidence that, like, people of color are, like, disproportionately, like, affected by that. Yeah, and I think I I get to it, like, a little later on. I couldn't find the exact thing. But when Nixon declared his war on drugs, it was something like 2% of the country said that it was a major issue. This is something that he created as a political strategy. There were people coming back from Vietnam that were addicted to heroin. That was a real thing, but it did not represent a large portion of the population. It did not occupy Americans' minds. If anything, we have a larger drug crisis today than when this started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. So, So to be fair, I will say that the veracity of this quote has been challenged. Um, Some say that Ehrlichman was mad at Nixon or somehow quote was misconstrued. So do with that what you will. I'm just trying to be a little bit more neutral. Uh, Nixon also started the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement, which would later become the DEA. I personally love when people preach states' rights, but then do this shit. Mm -hmm. Like, how is this states' rights? (laughs) Yeah. But so... If Nixon called for the war, it was Reagan that brought the tanks, quite literally. I learned that there was a Posse Comitatus Act post-Civil War. Posse Comitatus? We're going we're gonna to go with that. Unsure. Yeah. Yeah. But it basically says that the military should not be involved in the enforcement. Did you enforcement. say Posse? I love yeah. that you said Posse. Yeah. I don't know. Posse Comitatus Act. I'm just saying. Sounds kind of good. I'd eat it. <laughs> oh, I'd eat it? Them, Is that what you said? I get some of them pasta cum potatoes. <laughs> I never met a potato I didn't like. A tater? A tater? A tater? Yeah. Tater. <laughs> okay. okay. Haters you- over taters. Haters over taters. No. 
Taters over haters. Taters over haters, excuse me. So basically, this just this act said, like, separate the military from civil law enforcement, which makes sense because we don't want the military used against us. And as I keep hinting at, the war on drugs took this to another level. It has blurred these lines so deeply. Mm-hmm. In 1981, Reagan signed the Military Cooperation with Civil Law Enforcement Agencies Act. Terrible name. McLea. Mm. McLea. <laughs> so. I'm still hung up on posse. I'm trying to figure out the taters thing. But yes, I'm with you. <laughs> so this is going back to kind of what you had asked before. This act gave law enforcement access to military bases and research for the interdiction of drugs. So they got to go to military bases, use some military intelligence, all in the vein of stopping drug use and further closing that gap between military and police, state and federal. And although this might have started as a Republican strategy, as I said, it would be political death not to say that you're tough on crime. Bush and Clinton continued the war and increased the transfer of military equipment, training, and technology to local law enforcement, contingent on prioritizing the drug war and showing that through arrests. Clinton's crime bill is actually the most expansive in our country's history, but we're going to get into that a little bit next time. Okay. So back to the Gipper. In 1984, he signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, Among other things, it expanded penalties for marijuana, enacted mandatory minimums, and created new rules surrounding civil forfeiture. And this last part is important. So civil forfeiture, that's going to be rough. No, I know. Say it again. I have to say it. Civil forfeiture is the idea that the government can keep seized assets if they were used in the commission of a crime. The CCCA instituted, quote, equitable sharing, as in local law enforcement gets to share seized assets with the feds up to 80%. It was supposed to incentivize police to catch criminals. Well, you're not seizing a lot of assets solving a murder. I can tell you that much. Right. Yeah. So, So if police suspect you of dealing drugs, they don't have to notify you. They can get an ex parte order based on probable cause that could just be hearsay and then they can take all your shit. They don't have to charge you with a crime, and if you're found innocent, there's still a very good chance that you won't get your stuff back because you're up against the government who technically, if they lose, have to pay your attorney's fees, but they can always decide to file charges against you just to try to make you stop and just imagine the endless resources of the government. So they've seized your shit. You were never charged with a crime. You want your stuff back, but you have to essentially sue the government to get it back and, and what resources and who, and you have. Who do you, and who do you look, what do you look like? Yeah. So uh, systemically, this is, I, I, we're getting at this, like it's systemic racism, just right there. Yes. You're putting well, people and- into certain positions and they cannot afford that. So what the fuck do you expect them to do? They can't get an attorney. And attorneys won't take these cases because there's no money in it for them. And it's just a long fight against the government. And you're essentially screwed. And not to say anything against, like, the right to an attorney, which your Miranda rights are not technically guaranteed in any state. Everyone check your rights in wherever you live. Check your rights. But, like, your right to an attorney, you are technically guaranteed 
right only if you're charged with a crime see and that's that's where you're if you're not charged it does not apply just say say lawyer every time if you just like just say lawyer god but that's uh, that's not relevant to this they can just take your stuff they don't have to charge you with anything Technically, you have recourse to get it back, but the process of doing that is so burdensome to people that probably didn't have resources to begin with. And then they took your shit. Can you? And then if you try, if you say you try to get it back, they can always decide to charge you, even knowing that you didn't do anything or they won't win that case. It's just burying you in legal paperwork. No. Okay. All right. No. Yep. It's fine. I'm more upset than I was 15 seconds ago. It's fine. Let's keep going. <laughs> God. But yeah, so um, if this is something that you want to look deeper into, um, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, a book that I have been reading in prep for this, she goes really deep into how these issues work. I mean, it's fucking crazy, y'all. Like, she gives this example of like a woman who's just dating this guy who happened to acquire some marijuana in her car and she is not married she is just dating him but the police seized her car because it was quote unquote used in the commission of a crime so that's the commission part is so broad that they can kind of use it to cover anything and then you combine that with these like stop and frisk these broken windows all these ways for people to just search people Mm -hmm. the threshold of probable cause just keeps getting lower and lower And then you have this incentive because you get to keep 80% of these seized assets, and that's how you fund your police department, at least in part. So that's what we're building all of this up to. So another problem (laughs) with this, uh, among many, is that when the average person hears that drug arrests have doubled, tripled, they just assume that there's an uptick in illegal drug use rather than this incentivization program to make more drug arrests. Wait, 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 really fast, really fast. And I know that, like, this was part of me, like, dealing with how the war on drugs is, like, affecting us. And I know that you said that we're going to get to it, like, a little bit now. But as I was reading things, I wrote this down. In 2015, there were 1.3 million arrests for drug possession. Six times the number of arrests for drug sales. So as recently as 2017, I will not call him president, but Donald Trump promised to ramp up the war on drugs in a response to the opioid epidemic, even as states were pushing to legalize marijuana for recreational use. And so the public had begun to recognize that incarcerating people, it wasn't solving the problem. It wasn't helping people who were dealing with drug addiction. So that like approach recognizes that drug addiction, it's, it's a disease and not simply like illegal or like immoral behavior. No, absolutely. And we're, we will get to that a little bit more in the next episode. I mean, it's like 80% of Americans believe that the war on drugs has failed. This is not exactly a hot take, people. I'm just explaining it in a different way. No, I love it. Sorry. I, I just, I read like that thing and I was like, yeah, I have to say that because I also hate Donald we're gonna get a little bit more into there i'm still i'm still ramping up i'm trying to set the stage of how all these things led us to that point so when you hear about all these arrests as a regular person it's a natural conclusion to draw that oh they're arresting people more people there must be more crime committed 
just why I want to shed light on civil forfeiture and this law change in particular, because it's an incentivization for police to make these arrests. Selfishly for them, there are other mechanisms that incentivize them to make drug arrests specifically. We're going to get a little bit into that. So beyond the civil forfeiture incentive, federal grants and military resources are to serve the politically fueled drug war. So as a police department, you're forced to go after drug offenders to get resources and like honestly cool toys. So you start seeing all of these narcotics task forces and entire divisions pop up, highway patrol specifically like looking for drugs. And prior to this, a little known group known as SWAT becomes ever more important. A thousand percent. And honestly, like Sarah, when she's saying cool toys, she means that like in quotes, it's like cool toys. Like they get like guns and shit like that. Yeah. I mean, it's military grade toys. There are agreements where a lot of our decommissioned military equipment goes to local law enforcement. Yeah. So as far as SWAT goes, I feel like if you're our age, it's hard, or at least for me, at least it was, to imagine a modern America without SWAT. But just like credit scores, it got its big break in the late 80s. Oh my God, is that when I got a credit score? Credit scores as an idea has only existed since the 80s. It's still a fucking experiment. Yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. Fun. Yeah. That's really... Love that. Yeah, yeah. We're basically as old as credit scores. <laughs> I'm older than uh, AOL, I think. Well, maybe not. Not older than the internet, but... Maybe older than... I, I would think so. Well, it was in 1969, I think. Anyways, it, I'm good at math. It Keep going. A, a twinkle in internet daddy's uh, <laughs> Don't... God, don't say daddy. I hate <laughs> So... The special weapons and tactics teams. <laughs> Don't use your daddy voice when SWAT. you start talking. I hate that. Okay, start well. over. Start over. Ugh. Special weapon. I can't. I can't say it now. Special <laughs> weapons and tactics teams, or SWAT, had existed since the 1960s, but they were rarely used. It was reserved for things like hostage situations, prison escapes, like terrorism, those types of things. But in the 90s, they took off. Now, their most common use is to serve drug warrants, often without knocking, at night, with diversionary grenades and a battering ram. In some jurisdictions, this is just the default way that they serve these warrants. And that's not unlike what killed Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. So from 1989 to 2001, 789 cases of flawed military-style raids had reached the appellate level. Just some SWAT stats. The ACLU analyzed 500 SWAT raids from the year 2011 and found seven deaths, 46 injuries, and drugs were found at just 35% of the raids. Sidebar, Casey, have you heard of swatting someone? Uh, I don't think so. I hate that that's a term that exists. Um, if you haven't heard of the term, I'm sure you've heard of the practice. It's a like it's an internet thing and like a gamer thing where you call SWAT to somebody's house. No, what? No, because you're mad at them for whatever reason. You you call no. and like narc on them, and SWAT shows up. It's okay. called swatting. No, that is that's also something where I'm like disinterested. <sighs> 
if we already have the resources that we have, it's like women that use the Me Too movement to their benefit. Like, don't take something that is supposed to work. I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to, like, these things existed for a reason, but basically the reason why we have them now and they're so prevalent is only related to drugs. And like you just said, we've proven time and time again that these things don't work. And SWAT is basically used for these drug raids. The idea always that's like told to us is that we're trying to catch people that are trafficking drugs and that that drug trafficking leads to violence. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, but 35% of these raids they found drugs in. Just 35% and seven people died, 46 were injured. And we don't know the content of that 35%. Like, was it just simple possession? Were these raids on, you know, people that were actually trafficking drugs? Like, th it's clearly not helping and it's clearly killing people. And we're using military-grade weapons and equipment to enforce drug law. Well, and... We're maybe not getting like super into this, but I want to talk like just for a skosh about how like the police fed drugs into communities of color, like the cops disinterest in combating the drug infiltration into black communities. Like we don't talk about that. It's something I thought about including, but a lot of that happened at more of a federal level and since this is more about police and local law enforcement i didn't really touch on it but feel free to say what you want to say it just seems like it's part of the like corruption i mean we've put federal funds into countries that we knew were supplying drugs into poor communities in this country because it served different geopolitical interests to us but if you want to go back to the racism, that's a nice lead into my next no. thing. <laughs> no, I uh, I had a whole thing about it. We'll just no, go move. Ahead. No, no, just say what you want to say. Say what you want to say. No, go. I well, I have okay. So Nick Schneider wrote an article about the Netflix documentary um, about that exact issue, and he wrote quote. That's also true of the longstanding theory, first popularized by a 1996 San Jose Mercury News series of articles, that the CIA was either tactically or actively responsible for the 1980s influx of cocaine and crack into the American inner city. A 1996 Watts, California town hall meeting in which black American citizens rallied against then CIA chief John M. Dooch. I'm going to go with Dooch. Uh, suggests. It's not Dutch. I'm going to say Dutch. Dooch. Uh, Dooch. Okay. <laughs> suggests, along with National Security Archives, senior analyst Peter Kornblah's Bolt interview claims that the U.S. government is chiefly to blame for crack's ubiquity. Also, the extreme criminalization of narcotics has, during the past few decades, led to a mass incarceration catastrophe, predominantly punishing Black Americans. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, like, people of color overall, even though two-thirds of 
80s and 90s, like crack, the the 80s and 90s, crack users were reportedly white. So that was like what I wanted to say during it. Yeah, my recollection of that is that we were funding, I want to say like guerrilla groups because we didn't like the government that was in place in get what country that was, but they were also actively trafficking drugs and we just allowed that to happen and gave them, again, I think military weapons and funding. So, yep. So we brought it in and then in 1986, Reagan signed the Anti-Drug Abuse Act that established the famous 100 to 1 crack cocaine rule. It also imposed new mandatory minimums on marijuana possession. Oh, great. I'm assuming some knowledge on most people's part about the 100 to 1 rule, but I mean, at the time, I know what you just quoted, but my understanding has been that crack cocaine was mostly isolated to communities of color because crack cocaine is a diluted version of powdered cocaine. It's a more instant, more intense high that's not as long-lasting, but it's cheaper and it's easier to produce in mass. So you see that more in poorer communities of color, whereas powder cocaine was more reserved for whites. So this 100 to 1 rule punished, it was, I think, whatever, one gram of powder cocaine versus one gram of crack cocaine had 100 to 1 uh, sentencing to it. And chemically, it's not different at all. There's no other way to say it. It's just racism. Um, (sighs) Obama was the one that overturned this. And I won't say that I dislike Obama, but he also propagated a lot of the war on drugs as well, even though he promised he wouldn't. So anyway... As a result of these mandatory minimum sentencing, I haven't even gotten into that heavily because I feel like it's 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 very much out there. Um, but very few drug cases ever go to trial. Fear of minimum sentencing causes defendants to plead out regardless of guilt. So first-time offenses in federal court are five to ten years. And prior to this, drug offenses were rarely more than a year sentencing. Another example of how this isn't a partisan issue, uh, liberal-ass California has the three-strike laws, which is simple enough in concept. Three strikes, you're out. Leave it to the state with the most baseball teams, am I right? Yay! Uh, (laughs) But these are rollover strikes, and you can incur multiple strikes at once. So, for example, you sell drugs to make some extra money as a kid, and you agree to rat out your dealer and take a guilty plea to two of the charges. You go on, live your life, but life as a felon is hard. As everyone knows, you struggle to pay your rent, feed your kids, so you end up stealing supplies from a liquor store. Got well, to live, got to steal to eat, tell you about it when I got the time. Interesting, because I got another one coming up. Well, <laughs> well you do that, and uh, it, that's your third strike, and you're out, and you're now eligible for life imprisonment. And Sorry, I love Aladdin. You know what? what in the Jean Valjean <laughs> is that? That's why. <laughs> and he only got five years. <laughs> so many references. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, you fucked up as a kid and then 20 years go by and you fuck up one more time. Well, those 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 are rollover strikes, man. They don't go away. You always have them. And then, again, life imprisonment. It's just 
fucking wild me. Okay, so let's get a little bit into the law and the Constitution. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) I love that you went from like, yeah, no, it's fucking wild, man. Yeah. Yeah, well. Let's get a little bit into the Constitution. I don't, I don't have a great transition for that. that Everyone uh, those, settle in. Oh, those settle things in. make... We'll touch on mass incarceration a little bit. It's just such a deep dive, but... Sarah, the look on her face right now, I know it's not like a visual medium, but she is doing the best she can. She's like, hey, y'all, sit down. Okay? <laughs> if you're not sitting, just sit down. Don't. I don't have that that much more horrible stuff to get through for today. Um <laughs> So we talked about it a little bit, but the Fourth Amendment protects our rights against unreasonable search and seizure, but the policies of the war on drugs have created are what Thurgood Marshall dubbed, quote, the drug exception to the Constitution. So we already covered the seizure part of this. In 1968, Terry v. Ohio lowered the standard for stopping someone from probable cause to reasonable suspicion. This affirmed the validity of stop-and-frisk policies. Police could stop and frisk someone they had reasonable suspicion to believe was, quote, armed and presently dangerous. So this was from 1968 to the stop-and-frisk was what, like 1919? No, stop-and-frisk was 1964. Okay, sorry. I'm really good at numbers. We know that. And so subsequent rulings have allowed the use of handcuffs, weapons, and long detentions. It's hard to define the line of where this is just a stop and frisk and where this is almost an arrest. You can detain somebody without actually charging them. And it's really hard to understand the effect that these stop and frisks have on poor minority communities unless you've experienced it. I have not. I am saying that. I've just listened to people talk about it. Um, But it's all worth it if we get criminals on the street, right? (laughs) Right? It's really... It's really helping them just by reducing crime. That's my internal alarm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's all worth it. We have to stop all of this rampant crime. So again, these are from the early odds, but these studies, but um, shockingly, police stop minorities at a much higher rate than they <gasps> represent demographically. I know. What? I know. <laughs> what? In New York, where stop and frisk was a major part of Mayor Bloomberg's policy, roughly 90% of the people stopped were a minority, mostly black and Hispanics. Natives are six times more likely to be stopped than whites. Children to young adults are the most likely age. And police brutality is pretty even across age groups, which is so upsetting. Minority children are viewed as adults in the eyes of the police. During this time, about 90% of these stops did not result in an arrest or a summon. 90 fucking percent. It's psychological harassment that forces BIPOC people to fear and hate the police. Now, these stops often occur at what officers deem as hotspots within the community, And just being present at one of these quote-unquote hotspots is enough for reasonable suspicion. And they're not wrong. There usually is criminal activity there, but they can be places like liquor stores, bodegas, laundromats, even straight-up apartment complexes. And don't even get me fucking started on food deserts. But if you've ever been to the hood, you know that the quarter store is the grocery store. Non-criminal people need to go to these places where drug deals also occur. 
and they're stopped and frisked for nothing other than essentially being in the community. Further, these stops also allow officers to fingerprint and photograph young people that are not in the system, putting them in there. I lived in, I wouldn't call it the hood hood, but it was hood adjacent. And the liquor store also sold some groceries, like we had fruit there and stuff. And that's as close as I can get to this. But again, I feel like it's hard to to sort of grasp if you haven't like been to these communities. Like the place where I lived in Oakland, as you go further up the blocks, like the higher the numbers the blocks get, the more dangerous it is. And it, you can always tell because fucking everyone is on the street. Everybody's out of their house because there's so many people packed in these small houses that it's easier to be outside. But then they're outside and there are just cops rolling through there and just being outside in these areas where you live is often enough to be stopped and frisked. Yeah. So now let's flip this psychology from the person that's being stopped and frisked to the police themselves. As police are getting more resources and training from the military and they're granted more discretion more protection from punishment, it's a natural progression for police to start viewing the civilians as the enemy. And remember, from the last episode, police protect property, and now they enforce the agenda of the White House. And to that end, as funding is limited, connected with drug law enforcement and stop and frisk increase, where are the resources for property crime and even violent crime? All of your funding comes from enforcing drug law. So you're going to continue to enforce drug law whether you agree with it or not because otherwise you don't have funding for your department. Where There's no money going into investigating murder or property crime or assault or any of these things that people actually need help with. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the end of what I've got. Um, I'm just going to say that these are conversations that make grappling with the police such a difficult issue. Um, as I've said before, I used to be more of a bad apples believer, but even though I might yell fuck the police as an organization, I don't really go full ACAB. My education and experience lead me to believe that people are more influenced by their environment than most people realize. And I hope what I hope that I've conveyed is that all of these things that have happened have made it so really police can't do the job that we want them to, even if they're well-intentioned. You know, this is why I guess that I increasingly, the more I learn, lean more towards the side of abolishing the police and just starting over than I can believe that a true reform is actually possible. Do I think abolishing the police is possible? I don't know. But I don't know that any laws... Anything that's going to be passed now is actually really going to fix the heart of the problem. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I no. I I I understand what you're saying, and like you are so like well researched and like everything that you feel, and like like I said, like I learned so many things, and I feel like until maybe your last two sentences, like I am totally in agreement with you. Like if you listen to my sidebar on tribal. I think that I am very impartial because like Sarah said, we are not giving our police the resources to do the job that they are supposed to do. And they're not doing that job though. 
And so I think it's important that we discuss the verbiage behind defund the police. Because when people say defund the police, it doesn't mean take all their money away and we don't want a police anymore. I hated that when that was a thing that was happening. It, it, it's frustrating because it's not about defunding, like taking everything away. It's more about learning how we allocate funds. And I don't know how much I feel about like abolishing it and starting over. Um, but I, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I just, sorry, I wasn't necessarily trying to have you answered that specific question. I just, you, you see in my notes, I wrote discussion. So if there was anything that I said that you wanted to chime in on, it doesn't have to be that specifically. We're going to get more into like the modern stuff next episode. That's going to take us probably from like maybe the late eighties up until now. Oh yeah. Um, okay. And that'll be, oh man. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure you'll have lots of opinions. I just wanted to leave space for you to say anything that you wanted to or felt, but you also don't have to. No, yeah. I mean, that was pretty, that was like pretty much it. But like, also, I feel like I'm kind of talking about things that we're going to get into in the next step a little bit. And I might be what I'm, I'm feeling from you and maybe what people may want more is to like get into now. But that's why I wanted to sort of force this history on everyone, particularly this one. And there's so much I didn't cover that I I would like to, but we just don't have the time. We don't want to spend, you know, fucking months on this. Um, Yeah, it's not a police cover. No. So, um, (laughs) but the big one for me is this war on drugs. And I think that's the thing that really changed modern policing as we know it. And all of the regulation, or not regulation, all of the laws that accompany it. So if we're talking about like things that we could actually do that might help change something, I mean, a good fucking start would to be to call an end to it. Nobody has the gall to do that. Even though, like I mentioned earlier, at least something that I saw, I didn't research it too deeply, to be honest, but something like 80% of Americans don't think that it fucking worked. Listen to the people. They don't want it. <laughs> like, just be done with it. So. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't listen to the electoral college. We only listen to the electoral college here. Sure, 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 sure. This is a republic, not a democracy. <laughs> it's a cheerocracy, first of all. Okay. <laughs> uh, don't be a cheer tater. <laughs> You're being a cheer. Okay, I can't. <laughs> We're sexy. We're cute. We're popular to boot. Okay, no, just. Oh, okay. I'm keep this going. Is, this is back our trailer, our teaser. <laughs> <laughs> See how we bring it back around. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Ah. Full circle. It's callback, people. <laughs> All right. So with that, um, next time we will take the history of the war on drugs through the '90s and today. I'm going to throw a lot of horrible statistics at you. We're going to talk about mass incarceration in a little more depth. I've only touched on it, like I said, because we're trying to stick to police, but we can't talk about police and not talk about the side effects of all these people that are being locked up. And finally, we'll talk about where we are now and what the future looks like based on some people way smarter than me. I? Me? Anyway, what they think. What they (laughs) think, thought, said, much better word than Sarah. But... (laughs) 
Before we get to that, next week, our next episode is going to be my sidebar and on the police and the media or copaganda that I'm real excited about. Copaganda? <laughs> copaganda. Oh, man. Fam, she has never told me copaganda. So we're going we're gonna to talk about all the shows that we grew up with. Done, <gasps> done. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. As much as I love it, it's been bad. Still. <laughs> The CSI effect, man, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. All okay. that. Yep. So <laughs> thanks for hanging in there, everybody. It didn't actually end up as long as I was worried it would be. Yeah, pretty I, close. Pretty uh, close. Yeah, we're, we're going to sure get down through the editing process. Um, <laughs> thanks for hanging out. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, I love you, friends. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Death and Syntaxes. Our theme music is by Elaine LaGuerta. Visit us at deathandsyntaxespodcast.com or send us an email at deathandsyntaxespod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at deathandsyntaxespod and Twitter at death underscore syntaxes. Bye, friends.